there's no place else we'd rather be. Yeah, we've had nurses test positive. It's almost like a constant fear of when am I going to get it? Am I going to be the next one? Welcome to Proximity, medical stories from the front lines. I'm your host, Jen Hall. What was it really like to be on the front lines of the pandemic in a COVID-19 hotspot? Today, we're talking with Katie Howe, RN and Hospital Director of Emergency Services, to get her take on what it was like to be on the front lines of this pandemic. This episode is brought to you by Baltimore General Hospital, offering nationally recognized care in eight adult specialties. Depend on us for life. Katie, welcome. I'm happy to be here. So Katie, how many years have you been working in an ER and have you ever experienced anything like this COVID-19 pandemic? Well, I um, have had the honor of serving in the emergency services arena for the past 20 years. To answer your question as to whether I have ever seen anything like this pandemic before, that is a resounding no. In the ER setting over the years, you know, we've experienced H1N1, we've experienced SARS, um, we've done disaster management and, you know, managed multiple trauma patients at the same time or an influx of patients because of flu. But we have never experienced anything like the COVID-19 that we're experiencing now. Just a lot of unknowns. You know, in in a trauma patient, we know what to do when a trauma patient comes in. We know the protocols. We know what we're supposed to do in order to help save their life. And we do it and we do it like a well-oiled machine. And with the COVID-19 pandemic, everything changes every day and everything changes, you know, within the day. And we're learning more and more and and we just don't have all the answers. So that uncertainty, I think, has raised a lot of emotions amongst especially the ER nurses that I work alongside with. Now, you mentioned also dealing with the flu. How do you feel when people still compare this with the flu? Um, quite honestly, it can be kind of aggravating. It, yes, we know the flu exists, but we also know that there's vaccinations. We also know that the flu, while the strain does you know, mutate each year, that the vaccination usually has some sort of coverage. So while we do see deaths with flu and we do see people test positive for flu, this is a completely different virus, the way that it attacks our patients. So while people want to put it in the same bucket as the flu, I don't think they're doing it intentionally. I just think it's out of, you know, just a lack of knowledge. But this COVID-19 is very, very different, even though it can attack or, or create fevers and cough and shortness of breath. It's different. And do you have any personal stories that show how serious this virus or situation is that you or the nurses at your hospital have dealt with? Oh, gosh, Jen, there's so many. Uh, you know, this is the tough, tough, tough stuff uh, to talk about. And, and to share, but it's really hard, you know, in the emergency department specifically, it kind of hit home with me a couple weeks ago. We had an elderly gentleman bring his wife in 
we had her in a wheelchair. She was on home oxygen and he checked her in. She was having shortness of breath and, you know, she was able to speak, but had to take breaks, things like that. And we got ready to take her back and politely we excused her husband to go sit back in his car because at that point we were not allowing any visitors in the hospital at all. And watching that separation between a husband and wife who have been married for over 60 years and him giving her words of encouragement and saying, you're going to be okay. They're going to take good care of you. And I'm going to be right here. You know, I can't go back with you, but I'm not leaving. And you know, he was so strong for her and we got her back in the emergency department. And, you know, he looked up at me after she left to go back for treatment. And he said, I've never spent one moment away from her. I've never spent a night away from her. Every hospitalization, I've always stayed with her. And having to walk him to his car and, you know, sit him out there and assure him that we're going to give him updates and we're going to keep him informed. It was pretty gut-wrenching watching a a man who was pretty tough, just totally break down. And so that's one story. There's many stories of nurses sitting in full PPE, which is very grueling if you haven't heard about that, but it's hot, it's uncomfortable, it's irritating, it's breaking our skin out, it's causing a lot of pressure sores sometimes on the bridges of our nose. But sitting in there, holding the hand of these patients that are dying because their families can't be with them and and trying to be that that conduit so that that patient knows that they're loved and that they're cared about. There's stories of nurses in my my hospital in particular of holding a patient's hand. This was just Friday, holding a patient's hand and reaching out to the glass window and touching the hands of the patient's family members so that the family could maybe just try to feel their family through that nurse. You know, so there's stories over and over again. And and the thing is, it doesn't just affect those that have positive COVID-19 test results. It's affecting the young mom who's been trying to have a child and is pregnant and finally has carried the baby to 18 weeks thinking she's okay, but she's miscarrying now. And maybe it's her third or fourth miscarriage and her husband has not been able to be back with her or her significant other. And going in that room and and being that support to that person in that moment and trying to create that bond immediately. I mean, I can't even imagine having to go through a miscarriage with a stranger and yet we're doing it and they're connecting and they're appreciative. And the fact that we're there for them means the world to them. May I ask about the older couple? Did the wife make it? She passed away. I just got news yesterday. So heartbreaking. Did you get to see him? So he he waited in our parking lot for six hours before I convinced him to go home. (laughs) And um, that's the hard part because, you know, to get these people to actually leave and take care of themselves so that they don't get sick, right? It's hard because you assure them, you know, we've got her, we're going to take great care of her. And I'm very careful about my words um, right now and not saying she's going to be okay because right now we just don't know who's going to be okay. But I can assure them that we're going to be with them and that we're going to take the best care of them possible. But it's 
it's emotionally taxing to make sure you choose your words carefully so that you don't um, give them false hope, but that you give them assurance. Yeah, that's really good. With this gentleman then, so who is the one that tells him that his wife has passed? And is there any follow-up? Because now he's an older gentleman who's been exposed to COVID and probably lives alone, I'm assuming. Right. So with my organization, I absolutely love, um, we take very holistic approaches. So along the trajectory, you have to remember, you know, his wife came through the emergency department two weeks ago, right? So she's been in the hospital the entire time. So we've been able to implement some some strategies to connect families. So we use, we have ambassadors that continuously update the families. The physicians call the families after rounds every day. The nurse calls once a shift every single day. And then we have the ambassadors go around with FaceTime. So the iPad, so that they can see their loved one. And if the person doesn't have iPad or iPhone capabilities, we have additional iPads that a second ambassador will go out to the parking lot or wherever the person pulls up so that we can connect them to their loved one. So it's been very interesting, you know, using things like FaceTime and Zoom and making sure networks are secure because we don't want to violate HIPAA. And all these things have been so integral and things that we never even thought about having to do. But we have chaplaincy, we have social workers available. We do follow up. We do follow up with all of our patients' families that pass away to make sure that they have needs. And it's a really weird time right now because you can't have a standard funeral. You know, normally when someone passes, it's a time that family gets together and friends, right? And you have that support. And where I am in our region, it's not allowed. So you can have a small graveside service, but you're not having the the large gatherings and celebrations of life. And, you know, it may be a meal that's left on his doorstep now because there's also a stigma of, oh my gosh, what if he has it? I don't want to get it, right? So there's a stigma for those that have survived the loss of a loved one of, of passing it on to people reaching out to them as well. Wow. Sounds like you guys are doing some pretty amazing work with just keeping in contact and the follow-up. That's wonderful. As far as your hospital, do you feel you're getting the proper level of support from your organization? I feel very blessed. Our organization is at the forefront of putting their team first. You know, Everybody has been very scared throughout this process, especially the first few weeks. Now there's a level of reassurance. And I think it's because the organization has stepped up and said, we're going to make sure you have the right PPE. We're not going to expect you to go into these situations not protected. We would never ask an employee to do that. We have incident command in place and we make recommendations through that process. And, you know, the frontline staff, they said immediately off the bat, we want our patients masked when they come in through the ED. We're in a high-risk area. And at first, that wasn't recommended by the CDC. But our organization stepped up and said, you know, that makes really good sense because it's it's droplet and we know it's through the air. So if we mask the patients, that's going to help protect our team. Then, you know, a few days later, everybody was wearing masks. I love that your organization is listening to those on the front lines. This is a great place to take a quick break. We'll be right back. You chose this path of nursing and Baltimore General Hospital has developed a podcast just for you. 
The journey of nursing isn't just a repository of healthcare and nursing knowledge. Rather, it's veteran nurses telling it like it is, giving new nurses an honest, unvarnished glimpse into this noble career. Check it out at baltimoregeneral.org slash the journey of nursing. Veteran Insights today to help you change the world tomorrow. Katie, how are you and your colleagues doing both physically and mentally on the front lines of this pandemic? It's my understanding that some of the nurses have already had COVID-19. Yeah, we've had nurses test positive. I think it's, it's so tough because I think a lot of them, there's no place else we'd rather be, right? We, We wouldn't be anywhere else, but in that ER taking care of these patients. But it's almost like a constant fear of when am I going to get it? Am I going to be the next one? And you can't see it and you just have to wait for the symptoms to come and you do your best that you can to practice good, you know, infection prevention measures. But there's a constant looming heaviness, if that makes sense. But at the same time, there's all this teamwork and this togetherness. But I would say overall, we're coping. You know, I've had days where everybody's laughing and I've had days where it's just, they've just kind of maxed out for that time period and they're in the office crying. So it's, it's, it's kind of just a surreal time and just making sure that you support them in a way that that person can receive. You know, some people are very stoic. I have some, some people that are in the military and they just, they're nurses, but they're in the military as well. And they just kind of forge on, but it's definitely something that's on the radar for us to watch for in our frontline workers is, you know, PTSD. We're seeing early studies out of Wuhan right now that, that are kind of indicating that over 50% of the frontline workers there are now struggling with PTSD and they're, they're still experiencing this pandemic and are only, you know, months out and they're already seeing that. So we do worry about the effect of this on us. You know, will it ever be the same again? Probably not. We'll probably always look at things very differently. And ER nurses, we may end up in being the biggest germaphobes out there at the end of this, which may not be a bad thing. Is there something already in place? Any discussions happening about what is going to need to be in place to help nurses with PTSD? Yeah, we already have what we we call our CERT teams, so our crisis crisis intervention uh, response teams in place and they are rounding and we're trying to do that preventative things. And, you know, honestly, for instance, I have one nurse, she's not coping well with it. She's very anxious. She's a single mom. She doesn't have many resources. And I just sent her home. I said, go be with your kids. That's what she needed right then. You know, she didn't, she didn't need to be there because when they're not psychologically in the right place, then we can't give the great quality care that we need to give to our patients. So I think really knowing your team and and really just having that connection with them is so important right now. It's important all the time, but so important being able to read them. And it's hard to read them sometimes with the masks on too. So I've, I've learned how to read people through their eyes. I never even thought about that. Yeah, it's a challenge. You know, these nurses, they work long, hard hours. Some of them, you know, right now, emotionally, all they can handle are their three 12-hour shifts a week and and they're done, they're tapped out, and that's fine. Others, 
pick up a lot of hours. But I'm telling you, your nursing leaders and your executives right now, we're working seven days a week. You know, there's not an hour that has gone by that I don't receive an email or um, a page on my phone that is changing something. And how do you get 140 employees this information right now because it's something that's pertinent and get them all on the same page so that we can all move in the, the same direction. Um, because if we're all going scattered in, in, in different directions, we're not going to be effective in taking care of the patients. So, you know, I would say our nursing leaders, we're tired, we're exhausted, but we're the same as the frontline workers in the sense that there's no other place we'd rather be. But to take a step back or, you know, <laughs> take a step away, it's just not an option, A, and B, we wouldn't want to. That's not, that's not our purpose. That's not living out our values of why we went into this. You know, one of the things I hear people say a lot right now, um, some, some people say nurses didn't sign up to do this, or even some in our own professional say, I, I didn't sign up for this pandemic. Well, yeah, you kind of did. This is what we do as nurses. And in my mind, it's no different than taking care of a flu patient in the sense of, you know, we're around infection all the time in our jobs. So it really saddens me to hear nurses and other people say we didn't sign up for this. This is exactly what we signed up for. A lot of Florence Nightingale's theories and, and what she put into practice, we're practicing them right now. And it's coming back and coming full circle. Year of the nurse 2020. How iconic. That's really good. And when you come home from the hospital... What are some of the measures you're taking to protect your four kids? My oldest child, he's 22 and he is in EMS. So he's a firefighter EMT. And then he also works for the same organization doing ground transport of patients between hospitals. So he's been transferring a lot of the positive COVID-19 patients to higher levels of care if they need them. And so both of us are really in high risk positions as far as exposure. And so my three daughters, one is 19, her school and her job, you know, her school's been canceled. Her place of employment has closed. And then my two youngest daughters, 13 and 11, they both have chronic medical conditions that are such that they're immunocompromised. And so I made the decision three and a half weeks ago when things started to kind of amp up, you know what? you're going to go live with your grandma and grandpa right now. And so the three girls have been staying at my mom and dad's and hunkering down together as a measure to protect them all as well. So it's been really hard. It's been emotional. We've been playing card games via FaceTime and my dad will play my hand and I'll tell him what cards to play and, you know, guess who and all sorts of fun things. But it's been different and I miss them. And that's the hard part. I miss, I miss, uh, I miss the physical touch of people, just like so many other people are experiencing right now. You mentioned earlier the fears of getting COVID. Do you have other fears during this time? I think that some of the things that keep me up at night <laughs> um, are actually kind of symptoms of COVID-19. And when I say that, I mean things that happen as a result of maybe families that maybe um, experience domestic violence um, on occasion, now they're 
cooped up together, so to speak. And we have seen an uptick in domestic violence happening. I worry about suicides happening. We have seen that as well. I worry about the mental health of our country and how everyone is coping with it and how are we going to cope with this afterwards and um, what kind of support measures are put in place. And uh, it's it's tough. I can tell what a compassionate person you are. If those are a lot of your fears, when most people have their fears turned inward for themselves. We're givers. So um, nurses are really, uh, we're really good at enabling others because we take the burden on ourselves and we just go, 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 go. And when there's a need, we're going to be there. We're going to be there for our patients. We're going to be there for our coworkers. We just don't stop until we feel like we can't stop. And that's, that's one of the things that's hard during this pandemic is right now, everybody feels like, you know, we have to keep giving of ourselves. And in turn, what happens is we don't take care of ourselves, right? So that's, that's where the compassion fatigue comes in, where you go, go, go. I can tell you right now, I haven't slept more than three hours at a time in the past six weeks. I look like I've aged like a president in an eight-year term of presidency. So, you know, it's just, it takes, it takes its toll on you. And if you don't take time to just have a minute, it, it does catch up with you. I, I hit my wall last week. I hit my wall last week and I started getting body aches and fever. And I actually ended up getting tested myself just to make sure because it, you know, you're like, oh my gosh, it's mimicking COVID-19 signs. And, you know, we breathe this stuff in every day at work and am I positive? And because of that, I was tested and I was negative, but I'm, I'm certain that it was just fatigue. And so I chose to work from home for two days and kind of rejuvenated, working very hard still, but at least it was in my own environment. I needed that. I needed that. So compassion fatigue is real, but I can tell you, nurses, we're the badasses of healthcare. We, I mean, <laughs> we are, we're the backbone and we don't stop. And not that physicians or advanced practice providers or anybody else isn't just as worthy, but, you know, we are the ones that are there in that moment. We don't stop and we don't take very good care of ourselves. And we're too worried about, you know, our, our housekeepers and, we're like, do you have your, do you have your mask on? Right. You're going in and cleaning that room and it's a decon room. We need to, we need to make sure and making sure they're gowned up and we're worried about everybody else staying safe. And sometimes we're the first ones to run into the fire and not think about it. You mentioned hitting your wall last week. Is that the photo you sent me on Facebook? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Retired. I didn't think you looked aged. I just, that photo made me want to cry. I thought, oh, Katie. It's just so emotional, you know, and just, it's just raw. It's just raw emotion. You, you worry, your brain doesn't stop. I've never been so overloaded with so much information and felt so much responsibility to keep so many people safe and to also heal patients at the same time. Like, it's just, it's a lot, you know, and, and it doesn't help because my kids aren't home, right? It's just me and my son. So if my kids aren't here for me to take care of, because my amazing parents are looking out over them, then I, because I'm a nurse and an enabler, 
I got to take care of everybody else. So I'm working nonstop. I I have to do better. And um, I kind of pledged to myself this week that I would take time, even if they were just moments. So it's kind of about, you know, putting the oxygen on yourself before you try to help other people. And so I've had to really switch up my mindset this week and realize that I need to put the oxygen on myself. Yeah. What motivates you to keep going? That's a tough one. So I think what motivates me ultimately, it's my family, right? And I think that my friends, my coworkers, the patients that we care for, I'm passionate about nursing and I'm passionate about always putting our patients first. I'm passionate about taking care of my team. And so if I were to set back and just not do anything, I wouldn't be true to myself. So I think that's what motivates me is the fact that if I didn't do what I was doing, I I wouldn't be me. Hmm. I love that. What message would you like to send to listeners of this podcast? Stay home. I'm just kidding. <laughs> kind of, not really. I, You know, I would say there have been so many things written out there that are so fantastic about lessons we've learned from this, right? Like we, we're a pretty selfish group of people, right? And if I could send one message, it would be just don't be selfish for just a little bit longer. We will get through this. Think about your actions and how they could potentially affect those around you. It could be the words that you use. It could be you physically going out because you think that this is stupid. It's not stupid. It is not stupid. This pandemic is not stupid. So just hunker down, settle down, be kind to one another, check on your friends, check on your neighbors uh, through safe social distancing. Don't rush to get back to the way things were so quickly. I know some people are struggling. They're out of work. Reach out to them. That's what I'm talking about. Maybe doing something to help somebody who's out of work can make you feel like you're making a difference in this pandemic. But I'm telling you, cherish the moments right now that you're having with your family. And I hope that people with family and friends that they're quarantined with, and I I think it's great that we have all of these ways to communicate with each other virtually. That's amazing. But I hope moving forward from this, we can all take away the fact that eating at home daily is not a bad thing and maybe we should do more of it. Maybe checking on your friends more frequently is something that we should be doing all the time instead of just liking their post on Facebook or hearting on Instagram or, but genuinely having conversations and picking up the phone. And this may go into what you were just saying, but is there any silver lining to all of this? Oh my gosh, there's so much silver lining. So much silver lining. So from a healthcare perspective, so sometimes I think that we get caught up in processes and trying to change things and we have a meeting to have another meeting because we need to have a meeting to talk to this person in a meeting. And it's like, come on, let's just do it. Let's just make it happen, right? It it can be frustrating. And I think from this pandemic, I, I, I will say, I think that we've learned, we got a lot of smart people out there. We got a lot of good people and we can make things happen. Like 
from the front lines all the way to executives, to executives coming down and being on the front lines and listening to the frontline workers and understanding we're the ones doing the work. So listen to us, we may have ideas and then putting that into action and not having to go through all the different traditional steps we do to accomplish something, something that normally would have taken maybe six months to get accomplished. We're doing it in six hours, you know? So I think those are, are some of the positive things that we can learn in healthcare right now. And do you have anything else that you want to say that we haven't yet talked about or covered today? You know, you look back in, in history and, you know, you, you kind of started this off and asking, have I ever seen anything like this before? The answer is a resounding no, I have not in 20 years. I've not seen anything like this. But again, I think we have to reflect back and, and go, but our world has seen this, right? We've been through World War II. We've been through the Civil War. We've That's the birthplace of triaging patients and disaster management. And I think I want everybody to just understand that everybody's trying to do their best. We're trying to take the lessons that we've learned from World War II and from Florence Nightingale and apply them into practice in 2020. And who would have ever thought that going back to those basics would be so fundamental in 2020? And I guess that's that's part of what I think this pandemic might be trying to teach our society is go back to the basics what are the basics in life? You know, your family, your friends. I think it's a very interesting paradigm shift that we're living in. It's very surreal. You know, in closing, I I, I do, I want to give a shout out to every frontline worker, including grocery store workers and, you know, everybody out there, but um, especially just because it's my heart, you know, those badass nurses, I'm very proud of them. And I love that I am one of them. And I'm glad you are. Katie, thank you so much for being here with us today. You not only gave us a real and honest look into being on the front lines of this pandemic, but you opened my eyes to the tough and empathetic calling of being a nurse. It's been a delight to talk with you. It has been a delight. And thank you for letting me be here to talk to you about this very important stuff. Join us next week when we talk to a paramedic. The day that I ended up having, um, I had multiple patients that came in that were really struggling, struggling to breathe. And watching this patient that I had seen an hour talking, looking at me, watching that patient die in front of me, that really hit home for me. This episode was brought to you by Baltimore General Hospital. Produced by the team at Atherton Hill, which includes Jen Hall, Dan Brown, Randy Garman, Yi Min Minjichun, and Nancy Kramer. You started a company to provide a great product for your customers. You started a podcast to tell more people about your company. But is your podcast working? 
Podcasting is a great way to reach customers, but starting a successful podcast is a lot harder than it sounds. At Atherton Hill, we build better podcasts. We understand how to connect with customers in a meaningful way, creating relevant content your customers want and need. Find out how at athertonhill.com. 